My name is Keith Beavers, and I just got, are we popping collars? Because it's going to get warm out. That's what I need to pop my collar. Am I popping collar? Are we popping collar? What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode 12 of Fine Pairs Wine 101 Podcast Season 2. My name is Keith Beavers. I am the tasting director of Vine Pair. Hola. Oh boy. Okay. Wow. Champagne. Heavy stuff, guys. We gotta get we gotta explain some stuff here. It's pretty intense. So let's just let's just rip the band-aid off and talk about champagne. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Jay Vineyards and Winery. For over 30 years, Jay Vineyards and Winery has developed a reputation as one of the top sparkling and varietal wine producers in California. With styles from bright and bubbly to bold and complex, Jay Wines offer remarkable range and exceptional craftsmanship that you'll want to share. Jay has come to be known for its celebrated estate vineyards, contemporary winery, and world-class hospitality. Uncork joy with Jay and let life bubble over. I mean, when it's that kind of special occasion and you are looking for a bottle of bubbly, as an American wine drinker, you obviously go to the word champagne. And when you walk into a wine shop, you ask, where are the champagnes? Oh, thank you. Yes, our champagne section's right over here. They walk you over to the champagne section and they're like, these are our champagnes. And you look at, you look at it like, oh, wow. Oh, well, um, those prices are high. $50 is the, is the lowest, is that the lowest price? Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Do you have any other bubbly? What is it about champagne? You know, like why is it where it is in our brains as Americans? Like we walk into a wine shop, we assume if it's bubbly, it's going to be champagne. But we don't always end up buying the champagne because it's, it's really expensive. And if we do buy it, what do we actually know about it? What is, what is it about champagne? The thing is, I wish I could do a thorough history of the champagne region for you guys to give you a really good sense of how this place became what it is. Unfortunately, with 20 minutes, I can't do that. So we're going to discuss champagne. I'm going to talk to you guys about the Champagne region and what happens there. Because the thing about this wine that is made in this place called Champagne is it is very special. And the people that created what Champagne is today are some of the most innovative wine people on the planet because of what they have and what they've had. I'm sure in your mind, when you think about drinking a bottle of Champagne, or if you think about champagne, if you think about the, uh, the lifestyle around the idea of champagne, you know, you think of this sort of just like celebratory, laissez-faire, this is so wonderful. And the thing is, this is how the people in champagne are. Their wine does absolutely reflect who they are and how they celebrate life. But this is the thing about champagne. That, that love for life and that celebratory stuff is all very cool. But they had to create that out of a ton, not a ton, out of, out of some significant challenges. The Champagne region is located about 100 miles, give or take, east of the city of Paris. 
It is the most northerly wine growing region in France and the most northerly wine growing region in Europe. The Romans called this place Campania. And supposedly, Campania translated in Latin means open country. Champagne, Campania. That's how it came to be. And that's what this place is. It's this big open country of rolling hills with a river called the Marne, M-A-R-N-E, running through it. And in these hills, in this soil, is this very special white chalk. It's limestone-based. Some people call it Kimmeridgen. And that soil kind of adds to why Champagne is so special. But in addition to that, this open country is not protected by any mountain ranges, or anything like that. It is just there and it's open and the the and it's it's in the north and the weather and the climate is kind of crazy at times. It can be unpredictable. It can be intense. It can be extreme. Vines have been here for a long time, like since antiquity. But this area of France is a major crossroad of trade to Belgium and Switzerland and Paris and beyond. So for a long time, this land has been fought over. The first recorded really big battle was in 455 AD when Attila the Hun was actually here and they got him out of there. They got him out of there. Then there was this big civil war in the middle of the 17th century. And then, of course, World War I, there was a major battle in this area. And to this day, when you're walking around in Champagne, you can still see remnants of the trenches soldiers were fighting in and there's a big memorial and a cemetery there and as if climate and humans (laughs) in conflict are not enough that thing i'm going to talk about phylloxera came here as well it almost decimated the place but through this the people of champagne persisted and continued to make wine no matter what And the thing about Champagne's history is the wine in Champagne wasn't always sparkling wine. They also did not invent sparkling wine. Sparkling wine is a natural thing that happens. But they were in a position that when they started to see that there's the second fermentation thing, they were in a position to do something about it and harness it. The thing is, that location where the Champagne region is. There's a big town there called Reims or Reims. And the Marne River's there as well. They were right in that crossroads of trade. So the, the Champagne region was selling wine. It was just still wine. And it was kind of thin. And it was basically just Pinot Noir. Or probably some sort of field blend with Pinot Noir and other varieties. And sometimes, because of how, you know, it's it's cold up there, so the winters get really cold, and... Sometimes they would have these occurrences where in the spring, when everything warmed up, bottles would begin to explode. And what that basically is, is second fermentation happening, which we know now, especially from episode seven and season one, that was happening. The problem is they didn't like that. That's, that wasn't cool for them. They, they were losing wine. And at some point, a wine from champagne makes its way to England. And the English put it into their bottles A second fermentation happens, but at the time, the English glass was some of the strongest glass in the world. So they open the bottle after a while, and it's fizzy, 
but they're like, well, this is actually pretty good. So the Champagne region at some point decides that this is what they can focus on. Again, this is, these are all very general statements. The history is pretty deep and I can't go into it, but this is basically what's going on here. And basically you have from the 17th century until the 20th century, a lot of innovation. You had people like Dom Perignon, the monk that, that basically created the center of winemaking in Champagne in the town of Epernay, which we'll get to in a second, the towns and stuff like that. You had um, Veuve Clicquot, the, the widow, uh, Nicole Ponsardine, who inherited her champagne house from her husband at the age of 27 after he died an untimely death in the early 19th century. And she took it over and innovated like crazy. She actually created riddling, or what do they call it, rumage. And if you listen to episode seven in season one, how wine gets bubbly, I got all, you'll understand all that stuff. And also in the 19th century is when all the marketing starts to happen. This is when people like Boulanger, Krug, Roderer, these, these you know, large houses had marketing prowess. There, had, there were local growers, and then there were these houses. And they had the money and the means to market this wine. So what would happen here is you had this place that was cold. The wine was a little bit thin. But the good news is thin wine or high acid wine makes really good base wine for sparkling wine. They also realized that over a period of time through trial and error that there are certain varietals that do well here. And those are the varieties they're going to work with. They also started singling out villages that had the best vineyards in them. And they also started realizing that the winemaking process here was going to be very different, so they had to focus on that. So in 1927, when the Champagne Appellation was created, a lot of rules had to be put in place. And that was the job of the CIVC, the Interprofessional Committee of the Wines of Champagne. Because what's going on here is... If we're going to make this work, this sparkling wine thing, we all have to get on the same page, people. We all have to get on the same page. So what we're going to do is this Champagne region is the only AOC here. It's the only region in France that the entire region is only one AOC. And everyone has to follow the rules. And the rules get pretty specific from what kind of grapes you can grow. That's pretty general. But... The, there are literally like when you can actually harvest, there are windows of time to harvest. Um, the amount of wine you bring in to initially to the, to the press, you can only put a certain weight onto the press. How many times you press those grapes and for the length of time for each press is also regulated. There are so many rules in champagne, but they're there for a reason. Those rules keep this wine region moving, keeps everything pretty uniform, and there's plenty of room for creativity within those rules, and that's why champagne gets a little bit crazy, and for us, just if you're just a, you know, a regular wine lover who just wants a bottle of champagne, it's very hard just to understand champagne, because over 80,000 acres of land under vine... 76,000 of those are planted in 300 villages. 17 of those villages, the entire village is Grand Cru. 43 of those villages are Premier Cru. In Champagne, 
the Grong crew and Premier crew are entire villages, not actual plots of vineyard like they are in Burgundy. So Champagne is big, but the heart of Champagne is concentrated in the northern part of the region, uh, just south of a major city center called Reims, or Reims, R-E-M-S. Reims is how they, I'm probably butchering it, but that's how they pronounce it in French. And from that city center, sprawling out mostly to the south, Champagne is basically made up of five general districts. And what's kind of nice about this and is, is that the, the three of these districts, which are concentrated basically in the, in the heart of Champagne, each district is known for a certain variety. The wines of Champagne are made from two red varieties and one white variety. Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, which is a mutated Pinot grape, and Chardonnay. Okay, so have I apologized about my French? Okay, good. All right. So just south of the town of Reims, or Reims, is the district of Montagne de Reims, or the mountains of Reims. It's not mountains, they're hills. But this area is Pinot Noir primarily. And there are Grand Cru villages in this district. If you keep going south, you hit the River Marne. And if you go west on the River Marne, you enter into the Valley of the Marne, or Val du Marne. This is another district. It's the second district. And this is mainly Pinot Meunier, the other red wine variety that makes up the Champagne blend. And if you were going to go south of Rennes and you cross the River Marne and you keep on going south, you enter in what is, into what is called Côte du Blanc, the Hills of White. This is Chardonnay country with a significant amount of Grand Cru villages in it. And these villages and these three districts, this is where that white chalky clay is. This is like the gold of the area. And if you go even further south, like maybe I think maybe a little bit over 100 miles, there are two very southern areas districts in the Champagne region. One is called the Aube, A-U-B-E, and it's primarily Pinot Noir. And then there's Côte Cézanne, which is primarily Chardonnay. Then there's a lot of outlying area as well. But these five districts are what make up sort of the fine wine region of Champagne. And even though Champagne is bubbly, it does have depth to it. And these three varieties have roles to play in the wine. Pinot Noir often brings a little bit of weight, some sort of like headiness to a champagne. Pinot Meunier brings the acidity, kind of like gives it a little bit of a backbone, a little bit of tartness, a little bit of fruitness. Fruitness? <laughs> Fruitiness. And Chardonnay is said to kind of, it brings elegance, a roundness, sort of a finesse. And you'll notice this when you start to understand the different styles of champagne. And you have these big champagne houses that own or have contracts with vineyards all around this area. And they usually just bring it all in to a big merchant house. It's called a champagne house. And they make wine within their style. Then you have champagne makers that have the ways and means to own their own vineyards and make their own wine. And those are called growers. And so you're going you're to hear this term a lot called grower champagne. Grower champagne are local, more local, smaller production, a little bit boutique. Champagne houses are larger production. 
And this is what's so crazy about this wine region in the world is because of the, the climactic challenges, not every year is a great year. So in Champagne, what they do is they'll make wine and put it into barrel, but they'll hold on to it and they'll blend it with previous years. I think it's up to three years you can blend for a, a release. And you can have vintages going back really far. I think Boulanger has a, like going all the way back like 20, 30 years or something like that. But in a year that you don't have a good vintage, you make a non-vintage wine where you blend some of your current vintage with older vintages and then you release that. That usually tends to be the house or the grower's style. Every year they sit down and they taste through everything, through all the vintages and they build something for you. So when a vintage does happen and they're, and they're happy with one vintage and they put all the wine into one vintage instead of blending with previous vintages, a vintage champagne is a very special thing. It's a very big deal. The winemakers are like, every year we try to make this work and oh my gosh, here's a year where everything's almost perfect. We're putting this into a bottle and there's not going to be a lot of it. And there are three general styles of champagne that are made based on the three varieties that are used to make the wine. But these names don't necessarily have to be on the wine label, but more prominent uh, champagne houses will do that so you can understand what's going on. Back in the day, red wine grapes were considered black grapes. So the first style in champagne is called Blanc de Noir. And it is a wine made from black grapes, literally translated white made from blacks. And the two red, or the red varieties, the two red varieties in Champagne are Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. So a Blanc de Noir is made from Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier. It's often just Pinot Noir. It does have some Pinot Meunier in there to kind of give it some verve. This is the wines made from Blanc, uh, Blanc de Noirs. These are the sort of heady, sort of nice, deep Champagnes. And if there's a Blanc de Noir, there has to be a Blanc de Blanc, right? So Blanc de Blanc Champagne is champagne made primarily from Chardonnay. And if Chardonnay is, gives a champagne blend its finesse, if you ever have a Blanc de Blanc, you'll notice that there's not a lot of headiness to it. It's just kind of soft and round and bright and smooth. So Blanc de Blancs have a little more cleanliness to them, a little more elevatedness to them. Blanc de Noir have a little more headiness to them. And a third popular style, especially today, is Champagne Rosé, or Pink Champagne. And if you listen to the blending episode, I talk about this one blending style that doesn't really happen, and it really only happens in Champagne, is taking red wine and diluting it into white wine a little bit, which creates a pinkish color, and that is how Pink Champagne is made. They, they actually vinify some of the Pinot Noir or Pinot Meunier red, blend a little bit with the Chardonnay or vinified white anything, and they get a little bit of pink, and that's how they make it. And wine lovers, I, you have to, I, I, I'm trying to get something across here, I'm hoping I'm getting it across, is that this place, the, the, like just the way, the fact that they make wine is, is incredible. The fact that they make elegant sort of fine wine is incredible. The fact that they took what they had, their climate and, and the situation they had there, and they created something beautiful out of it. Like I said, sparkling wine is not, was not invented in Champagne. 
it, it's a natural occurrence, but the, the people in Champagne took it and just created something beautiful. The standard of, sh- of sparkling wine around the world is based on Champagne now. When you get a sparkling wine anywhere in the world, it's probably going to be Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, sometimes Pinot Meunier. I mean, the famous sparkling wine of the Penedes in Spain, which we'll get into at some point, Cava, is basically a people trying to copy what they saw in Champagne with the local varieties they had in their area. And today, Chardonnay is allowed in the blend of these three native varieties that were initially used for for Cava because it's known and proven what Chardonnay can do in a blend based on what they do in Champagne. And the thing about Champagne, and this is is what's going to be a little frustrating for you as a wine lover, is every house and every grower that makes champagne, they have their own style. It's just so fascinating because you have a wine region that is huge and only one AOC. It's one big appellation. And it has a a long list of rules across the appellation. So the people in Champagne are like, well, if we're going to adhere to all these rules, we're going to make what we do more individual than what they, what's our, our neighbor does. So there's just this, it's, it's hard to kind of like, oh, well, this is what champagne is because champagne is just all kinds of stuff. It's all kinds of textures and flavors and it's everything. It's really hard to say like, like th- if you drink champagne from here, it's going to be like this. Or It's all about the winemaker and what they do and where they get their grapes from. So it's not very, it's not the easiest thing to get into champagne because of that. You can understand the styles. You can understand the, the, the Grand Cru villages and the Premier Cru villages. You can understand that kind of stuff. But until you start just getting into the wines and actually drinking them, can you really understand the different styles? And unfortunately, champagne is expensive. The thing is, it's expensive because of the labor involved in making this wine, which you'll, you can listen to in episode seven and season one. But it's also a significant amount of marketing. I mean, the 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 Madame Boulanger went to went to England and just traveled all over the country promoting her champagne. Charlie Heidsick, Champagne Charlie, came to the United States, came to New York just before the Civil War and started giving champagne to the elite society of New York City. It's it's marketed as a luxury item. So it's it's labor, it's labor intensive. It's marketed as a luxury item and you're holding on to a bunch of inventory in back vintages as well. So it's a lot. It's a lot to get into. So the way to get into champagne really is just to start drinking. But it's tough because, like I said, it really kind of starts at like 40 bucks a bottle, 50 bucks a bottle for a non-vintage. So just like a lot of wines in, uh, in the world, this is the hardest really Champagne is one of the hardest ones to get into because of the cost. So if you want to get into champagne and you really want to start understanding it, this wine category of sparkling wine and champagne, this is where you really should know somebody. Know your wine merchant. Get to know, find a wine shop you trust and get to know those people and let them guide you through champagne because you're going to be spending, you won't be buying a lot of it, but when you do buy it, you're going to want to try something new and different. So this is the kind, this is the category of wine that you should definitely trust somebody with. Okay, that was a general discussion and overview about champagne. I want to give you, I wanted to give you a sense of the challenges they have there, what they created out of those challenges and what we have today and the styles you can encounter. 
At some point, maybe we can do a nice deep dive into the history and really understand how everything really developed. But until then, enjoy the bubs. Find Pear Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Jay Vineyards and Winery. For over 30 years, Jay Vineyards and Winery has developed a reputation as one of the top sparkling and varietal wine producers in California. With styles from bright and bubbly to bold and complex, Jay Wines offer remarkable range and exceptional craftsmanship that you'll want to share. Jay has come to be known for its celebrated estate vineyards, contemporary winery, and world-class hospitality. Uncork joy with Jay and let life bubble over.